Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I imagine that by now, many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is healing eco-anxiety and the earth. My guest is Susan Bauer-Wu, who is the president of the Mind and Life Institute, and in 2021, she introduced His Holiness the Dalai Lama in conversation with Greta Thunberg and leading scientists. She wrote a book inspired by that conversation, A Future We Can Love, How We Can Reverse the Climate Crisis with the Power of Our Hearts and Minds, which is the topic of our conversation today. She is also author of Leaves Falling Gently, Living Fully with Serious and life-limiting illness through mindfulness, compassion, and connectedness. Susan is located in Charlottesville, Virginia. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Susan. It is such a pleasure to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Hi, Emmy. I'm really excited to be here to speak with you. You have had the unique privilege of introducing the conversation between His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Greta Thunberg and leading scientists on the climate crisis. And the reason that I wanted to have you on this conversation here on New Thinking Aloud today is because on New Thinking Aloud, we cover topics related to parapsychology. And this topic and parapsychology have a connection about the interconnectedness and the reality of all of us being together and how we impact each other. Well, that's at the heart of the times that we're in. I mean, the reality is we are all interconnected and, you know, how we show up, how we live, how we relate to one another affects everyone. Yeah. Affects everything. And I want to encourage our viewers and our listeners to keep listening because even this topic around the climate change and climate crisis can have people feeling very uncomfortable and people can immediately begin feeling either dismissive or shame or feel blame or even hopeless or helpless, which seems to be what the definition of eco-anxiety is all about. When we, when we look really closely at what's happening and you don't have to look far to see how things are changing, uh, it's scary and it's overwhelming. And I could say for myself that um, I'm relatively, you know, new to this. It's not like I've been a climate scientist and activist my whole life. I'm, you know, a, a, you know, a mother and a grandmother and I run an organization and, um, I'm a caring citizen, a caring global citizen. And, um, it was scary when I first started dipping my toes. I would run away from the scary news of what I was reading. And then the more I actually, um, learned and listened and realized I wasn't alone, 
it wasn't as scary and overwhelming. And so I'm hoping that others will start to realize that, you know, run, running away isn't going to help us, right? But what, what can we do by um, turning toward it and doing that together? I had the same experience through reading your wonderful book that shares what is happening with the earth, the science, and various ways that we can help the earth. So to get us started a little bit, can you share just a little bit about the Mind and Life Institute and and what that organization does and, and why the topic of healing the earth is so important to you? Yeah, so um, so the Mind and Life Institute is a nonprofit organization. We're based in the United States. I'm actually in Charlottesville, Virginia, and our work is is international. And we give grants out and uh, do educational programs that reach people all over the world. And our mission is to integrate science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action. Uh, toward flourishing, which is essentially to create positive change in the world. And um, for many, and the organization's been around for 35 years. It was co-founded by the Dalai Lama 35 years ago. And he is actually still connected to the organization and the event that inspired the book, A Future We Can Love. Um, he was, you know, very, very engaged and very much a, a, a part of um, what we did at that time and continues we continue to do. And for many years, the mission statement in our work was all around human flourishing. It was, it was actually in the mission statement was about, you, you know, we, we do this work because we want to foster human flourishing. And when we went through a strategic visioning process a few years ago, we stepped back and we realized that we as humans cannot flourish unless everyone flourishes. That means the non-human beings on the planet that we share, which is our only home. And so if the non-human world is flourishing, then we can flourish and vice versa. We have this reciprocal relationship with nature every single moment that we are alive. The mission was really around helping humans, but it sounds like you've broadened that to include the earth and all of its inhabitants. Exactly. Yeah. And, and like I, I, you know, want to underscore is that our work is at the overlap between science and scientific understanding as well as contemplative wisdom. And that's really, you know, all of the world's spiritual traditions as well as other forms of spirituality and bringing that into our understanding of who we are as, you know, individuals and a collective. What is the science currently saying about the state of our earth? Well, I, I think this, the scientists have been pretty clear for quite a long time now. And so what they're saying and what we understand is that we are at a really important time in our Earth's history and humanity's history. And um, the Earth, the Earth, the atmosphere is getting um, hotter and hotter, and there are detrimental consequences that are taking place. Like that's that's a fact. And so the the, the book, A Future We Can Love, um, talks about what's called the science of climate feedback loops. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, and that was a new area for me when I first got turned on to understanding climate science. I hadn't really, it didn't, I hadn't quite wrapped my head around what climate feedback loops were and why they were important, but I get it now. There are many types of feedback loops. Can you share a few with us? Yeah, I'll um, share one that is um, really near and dear to me, and it's actually the forest feedback loop because I love trees. And the forest feedback loop is, well, essentially what feedback loops are, let me just begin by saying it's essentially the warming of the earth actually contributes to further heating and, and getting hotter and hotter. So an example of that is this is that as we're having um, global warming, what's happening to the forest is that we're having more forest fires and trees are, are burning. There are insects, more insects that are, that are killing trees. And as a result of the forest, um, the trees dying, then when they die, all of a sudden, all the years of the carbon that they've been holding inside their roots, inside their, their trunks gets released. So we have to remember this, Emmy, that we are breathing in the tree's breath and they are breathing in our breath. So when we breathe out carbon dioxide and we have all these emissions that are carbon dioxide, trees are natural carbon absorbers. They just take in carb, they just take it in just by being trees. And when the trees die, either naturally from, from burning or they dry, they die naturally from, from burning or from insects or they get cut down because of massive deforestation. When that happens, these big old trees release a ton of carbon into the atmosphere. And when that happens, what happens? It continues to get warmer. And the other thing is that trees naturally are the best cooling agent that we have. They naturally just cool. Besides pulling out the carbon, they actually create canopies that help to keep the, the planet cool. And when we lose our trees, then the warming of the earth just gets warm, gets, you know, warmer and warmer. Another, another kind of feedback loop is called, relates to permafrost. So we may not know about permafrost and we may think, well, permafrost has nothing to do with us when we live down, you know, in the United States. So permafrost is basically the ground that's up in the Arctic that has been frozen for hundreds of thousands of years, probably millions of years, right? And right now there are fires up in the Arctic and there are the, you know, hundred degree days up in the Arctic now, never heard of before. And basically what is happening is that that um, amazing carbon and all these microorganisms that have been under the ground for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years are all of a sudden getting released. So there's this another carbon explosion as a result of just warming itself. And when that, that happens, then that contributes to further warming. 
In your book, you mentioned that if every person on the planet planted six trees over the next six years, and that we maintained our current forests, that we could halt what's happening. Yeah, that that actually is、uh, something I was、um, referring to a.、Uh, A biologist who's based in Canada, Diana Breesford Kroger, and she says that, and that basically, you know, if if we did that, but we if we if we planted trees and we left the current forests alone, it absolutely would have a, a a very positive impact in cooling the planet. At the same time, just to keep our viewers listening, and we understand this is an uncomfortable topic. There are cities like Oslo who are enacting zero carbon emissions, and other cities are taking notice and have been following suit. Yeah, actually, it's pretty amazing if you look at what's going on. There are many examples of cities around the world and、um, organizations, companies, nonprofits, communities all over the world. That are doing a lot of a lot of amazing、um, work and action and enacting policies to create to create change, and that gives me hope. Yeah, because there's a, there's so much happening, and the more people that I meet and talk to, the more excited and the more more hopeful that that I get. So Oslo is an example, and I would. Generally, say that the European cities are way ahead of the American cities, although there are American cities that are doing great work. And you look at like the the city of Tucson and the mayor of Tucson, who has this whole planting tree.、Um, I think she's her plan is to plant a million trees during the time that she she's in office all around the the city of Tucson. But in Oslo, what they've done, they've actually are creating incentives and policies for. Um, for companies to take on,、um, you know, greener,、um, you know, greener ways of of、um, running their business. I imagine there may be some listening who are either thinking, "Oh, this is all hopeless. We've we're past a tipping point," and there might be some listening thinking, "Well, somebody else will take care of this for me. I don't really need to do anything." What do you say to those two camps? Yeah. I think about it a lot, and I talk to quite a few people about this. And from my understanding of the scientists that I've spoken to, and it's been spoken to quite a few, is that we haven't crossed the tipping point yet, and we are close. And honestly, that the the next ten years really matters. So everyone can play play a role. In helping us to slow down and begin to reverse the the warming and and to begin to create cooling. So, I, from my understanding, we haven't crossed the tipping point yet, but we're very close. And what we do really does matter. It absolutely does matter, and our mindset matters. You have a background in mindfulness. You have a background as a nurse. You've helped people with end of life care. How do you see the parallels of what's happening here now with the Earth, and how you would care and nurture those during their transitioning moments in life? I see quite a lot of parallels to end of life care and where we are in caring for the planet and caring for ourselves at this moment in time. And one of the things that I 
have seen throughout the years in caring for people who are in the last phase of their life is that they actually find more meaning and more joy and touch into love in a deeper, more profound way. Because we recognize that our moments are precious. Like we, we should get that anyway. We shouldn't have to wait until we're in our last days to recognize that. But oftentimes it doesn't happen. We're too busy being busy and striving and doing and, and it's not usually it, not until something happens to us that we begin to realize you stop in our tracks and say, Oh, wait a second. Our, my life is precious. And you begin to see things in, in a new and beautiful way. Oftentimes it's like the people that have been part of your life or, you know, your whole life, you see them in a different way. And it's a way where you really value their, their connection. You begin to notice the beauty of a flower and the swaying of trees and the ocean and the birds and you know, just these simple pleasures that are present to us all the time, we begin to see in a new light. And I think that this is an opportunity as it relates to uh, climate change and the climate crisis is that if we can begin to recognize that the world that we know right now is precious and we need to care for her, we need to care for her with love and to do everything we can to protect her, then we're going to, you know, um, impact the future and the future generations. And at the same time, we will really appreciate and enjoy what we have right here, right now. Mm-hmm. The earth may be going through its own palliative or hospice care, but even sometimes patients who are receiving those services don't die and they continue on. And we certainly hope by having this conversation and all the other people and everyone listening uh, can take steps in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me, I mean, when I was a hospice nurse and, you know, the, you know, essentially to go on to hospice, you'd have to have a confirmed, this was many years ago, a confirmed diagnosis with less than six months to live. But of course, nobody knows that. And I remember following people for years. They had been on hospice for many years and, um, and they had a good quality of life as well. Yeah. And, uh, having recently had a couple family members, close family members on hospice, I was told that it's very common when people first go on hospice to actually improve with their health. Yeah. They, that is the, that is absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's in the same idea. It's the same, it's the same idea. Like, okay, my days are precious. How am I going to live these days? And that does, that does seem to happen. How have your spiritual mindfulness, meditation and contemplative practices helped you with what's happening with the earth? It grounds me really grounds me. You know, when I, when I can, um, catch myself in a state of worrying, I, you know, I have grandchildren 
Um, I care about a lot of people and, and non-human beings. And when I can just ground myself and my spirituality and my mindfulness practice just brings me back to this moment and to realize that I'm, I'm not alone, that I actually am part of this amazing, amazing web of infinite energy, infinite, you know, people and beings. And remembering that actually is really nourishing. It really, it buoys me. And, you know, I'm reminded of something that Vandana Shiva said. And Vandana Shiva is this, like, she's, she's from India and she's this amazing scientist, activist, um, who, and a feminist, and she's just really, really brilliant. And, and she said that consciousness is the currency of a sacred universe. Consciousness is the currency of a sacred universe. It's like, it's just like waking up to what is in the most subtlest way. It's when we realize that we're not simply material beings. And all the different spiritual traditions all over the world recognize sacredness and the profound connection to the natural world. Yeah. And our food, our breath, our water, which is who we are, like in a physical sense, they are sacred and life-giving, life-giving literally and metaphorically. We are nature itself, and we are all connected, as you say, through consciousness, and every action that we take, whether we realize it or not, impacts all of us, even our thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And then our thoughts affect our actions. And, you know, there, there's, in, in a future we can love the book, I, um, I interviewed and learned about the work of somebody named Karen O'Brien and Karen's a sociologist who's based in, in Norway, actually. And she, um, has studied and writes about something called quantum social change, quantum social change. So if you understand like physics, you think about physics, you know a little bit about quantum physics. It's like fractals, right? And these, these, these fractals of energy are communicating. Well, we are social fractals. We are social fractals. And who we are, our, our actions matter and there's a ripple effect. And so in a very simple, practical way to think about it, our mindsets of how we look at the world, our relationship to the world, our relationship to one another, Okay, that mindset affects how we are with our family, with our loved ones, in our communities, and that affects them. And then they affect others. And that goes beyond mindsets, which ultimately affect our behaviors. And we as individuals, we think about this like these ripples, these, these social fractal ripples can then go on to expand beyond our families, beyond our communities, 
but to all the different, you know, networks around the cities we live in, the country we live in, and then all around, all around the world. So I love, I actually love this idea of, of quantum social change and to know that I'm a, I'm a fractal within this very large system and this, this web that we're all part of. It can be very empowering. It is. I have found it empowering. It's like, you know, instead of going from this place of being numb and frozen and restricted into feeling like, you know, you're all, I'm, it's just me and we get my life, my family, my, and then to like, whoa, wait a second. How I show up matters. How I affect my family. The conversations I have with my children and my grandchildren and my neighbors and the person in the, in the grocery store, it matters. What suggestions can you give to those listening on what they can do? Because I think that a lot of people feel, Oh, does it really matter if I recycle my water bottle? Uh, I've heard recycling doesn't really work and it's just going to end up in a landfill or it's going to end up in a waterway anyhow, how can I really make change when it just all seems futile? There's a lot we can do. There, there is, there's is so much we, we can do. And I will tell you, no action is, is too small. So, you know, as it relates to recycling, there's a whole lot more you can do than recycle. Actually think about the plastic bottle before you buy it. If we all cut down on buying plastic bottles, then we wouldn't have to think about recycling them. And actually, you know, that can also, we can think about, well, we can also impact policies of who we vote for. Because if there are policies related to the plastic bottles, then we wouldn't have to, you know, wouldn't have to be an individual decision of what we do with it or we, what we, we don't do with it. But there, there's a, there's a, there's so much we could do. And I'd say, you know, the simplest, the simplest ways are, first of all, be curious and begin to just notice. Instead of shutting down, just begin to be curious and to catch yourself and to think about climate. Think about climate. Think about the natural world. Think about your future, your, your, you know, your, your future generations. When you buy something, when you travel, how you travel, when you vote, if you have money to invest and in how you invest it, like there's like, like there are just micro decisions that we make every day. And, but we're doing it so unconsciously. Like we're like, we're just like on autopilot and how we're living our lives. It's like, okay, the next time I buy a vehicle, I'll continue to buy a really big, comfortable vehicle because that's what I'm used to. That's what I like. But maybe we could be, begin to just uh, question our own assumptions. So I'm not telling you how to act or what to do, but maybe encouraging you to be curious and to just like, you know, take baby steps of what maybe what what you can do, what you can't do. The other thing that I think is really important that's really powerful is just talking about it. Let's just demystify it and begin to have regular conversations across generations with different, different people about this. And 
you know, for a future we can love, we were actually creating a, a reader's discussion guide and ha- and encouraging community conversations conversations with with family to just think about it. It's not it, we're we're not you know blaming, shaming, and pointing fingers and saying you have to do this. But my my approach is all about let's begin to notice, to get conscious, to wake up, to be curious, to care, to bring love into the conversation instead of fear, instead of anger, instead of despair, can we bring love into it? And that's actually in the title of the book. It seems it's also okay to honor those feelings of sadness and anger while you say getting curious and being more mindful of the choices and decisions you make every day. Absolutely. Well, whether it's, you know, loss of a loved one or loss of a species, it's normal to feel sad and it's healthy to feel sad and to acknowledge our grief. You know, to, to deny it is not, is not necessarily going to serve anyone. So it, it is honoring that. And, um, there are practices that we could do to move through grief and to move through anxiety. Um, and it's going to ebb and flow. We're going to have moments when we feel it. But at the same time, the flip side of the coin from anxiety and grief is actually, um, wonder and beauty and love. It's not one or the other. It's both and. Yeah. And that's what mindfulness is really seems to be all about. It is. I, for me, it is, you know, you, you look at the, um, from an Eastern, uh, tradition and Eastern language, Eastern being far East, like, you know, Chinese and Japanese, you look at the character for mind and the character for mind it's the same exact character as heart. There's no distinction. It's called kokoro in, in Japanese. And so w- when I think about mindfulness and teach mindfulness and live, live mindfully, it's actually, instead of saying mindful, you could say heartful. Mm, I like that. It's about heartfulness. It's, it's, there's a, you know, a softness and a wholeness to being present. And for those listening, we are right there with you. We feel that sadness, that grief, uh, and, and continue to wonder what we can do. And like you say, Susan, there are steps we can take and also to recognize that you do matter, which is why we wanted to have this conversation today. And we hope everybody listening does contemplate some of those simple steps and then maybe even some larger steps you can take to assist in this planet that we are all interdependent upon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a couple things come to mind right now. And um, it's really clear things are uncertain, right? And things, the future is uncertain always. But as it relates to this issue, it's uncertain. We don't, you know, how, know how the next hundred years will, will unfold. But there's, um, 
Joanna Macy, who's this amazing, brilliant, beautiful spiritual teacher and eco, um, eco spiritual teacher. And she says, you know, as long as there's uns with uncertainty, there's possibility. And when there's possibility, there's hope. Yeah. So we are in an uncertain time and how we show up now individually, collectively, it matters. And there's possibility and there's hope in that. And as I mentioned Vandana Shiva earlier and Vandana Shiva in conversation with her, Esther said, well, Vandana, what gives you hope? And she said, a seed, a single seed. You look at the miracle of a single seed, you plant it and it grows. Like how is that? And then we feed ourselves with that or it turns into a big, beautiful tree, right? And that's why I also think it's critical that our young people, we get our young, our children to get their hands in the soil and to connect with nature, to get away from the devices and to recognize that it's more than the World Wide Web. There is a World Wide Web of an amazing natural universe that we're, we're, we're part of. Yeah. I was just out in my organic garden yesterday. It's spring here in Minnesota and I was so grateful. It was a beautiful day and uh, I started planting my vegetables and some transplants. And there's even evidence that uh, being out in nature can help us all individually with our physical and mental health. Oh yeah. And th- there's no doubt about that. I mean, the, the, the research is very, very clear, both physical and mental health. But just think about it. You don't need to look at the research. Just be your, you know, your, your own experiment, your own N of one of uh, what does it feel like, Emmy, after you spend time in your garden? Peaceful. Uh, I'm not thinking about all the different to-do lists and <laughs> also feel really grateful after having read your wonderful book that I am contributing to helping the health of the planet by having a garden. Now I recognize that everybody can have a garden and uh, there's been times where I've had potted plants if I didn't have the space. Um, I've also started and led a community garden in my neighborhood for 10 years. And not that everybody needs to do that, but that is also a way that we can serve if we don't have the own, our own space where we live. Yeah, those are those are great examples. Yeah, no matter where where you live, even if you live in a city, there are community more and more community gardens that are that are available. I'll share share with you. I also have a garden, and um, yesterday, just yesterday, the end of the workday. So I I am mostly sitting in front of my computer all day long. Just to be honest with you, my that's the nature of the work that that I do, and I work remotely. And by the end of the day, I'm zapped. I'm fried. I'm just feeling exhausted. And I push myself yesterday. It's like, okay, just go for a walk. Go, go down to the garden. And when I did that and I just went, you know, basically watered the garden and I pulled a few weeds and then I went back was walking back to the house and I noticed how much more energy I had. Yeah. It was striking. 
at the same time, technology does have a lot of benefits and it can help us like with our conversation here today, recording this conversation and bringing it out to many people on the internet. Some people may not be motivated by altruistic methods. They may be more motivated by saving on their energy bill, for example. Yeah, there are, there are definitely financial incentives, um, to being more, more green and more, more conscious. And that, um, we can look at different behaviors that we're involved in. And even if we don't want to make big changes, we can begin to see that how we're, you know, affected by climate and how we can, how, um, our lives can be positive, positively impacted. In an attempt to help those who are listening, who do experience that eco-anxiety, and you and I experience it, can you share some helpful tips from your contemplative or mindfulness practices that can help people with some of those feelings that can be uncomfortable for them? Beginning no matter what with with a, a grounding practice is really helpful and really important. And so what is a grounding practice? It's literally feeling your feet on the ground, connecting to the earth, sitting in a chair or floor or the ground, wherever you are, and recognizing that ultimately you are supported by the earth. Breathing in with awareness. And as you're breathing in, recognizing you're breathing in, and you're breathing in oxygen that's coming from the trees and everything green. And when you breathe out, breathe out really slowly. Maybe have your lips be a little bit pursed like you're breathing out through a straw. And do that slowly. You can count if you'd like. Count to five. And when you breathe out, you're breathing out carbon dioxide that is then going back to the trees. And then you breathe in again. And just do that, even if you did that, for three inhales and three exhales. That can really, really uh, transform anxiety, agitation, mental agitation, physical agitation to be in much more relaxed. And when we're then more relaxed, we can begin anew. And the next moment we can, we can um, see more clearly, be more present for our families, for our loved ones, um, be better able focus to do our, to do our work. So it's, you know, it, it's, um, there's simple, simple practices that we can do anytime, any day. That is a lovely example of how we, we are literally breathing with the trees and everything green in the world. Yeah. Yeah. We are. And when we real, uh, when we, you know, can pause to tune into that besides the breath actually being a relaxation method and cutting down anxiety, but by connecting with that awareness, it also helps us to expand and realize we're, we're part of 
the whole. And what suggestions do you have for those who might feel guilt or shame with how we got to this point? Well, guilt or shame doesn't serve anyone. So I don't, I, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not big on regret, like, or I'm not a fan of regret because, um, it does, it's not going to help us, but what we, so let go of it. Like, okay, the, the past is the past, but what we could do is to, um, feel good about our actions now to impact the future because in the future, our actions now will be the past. So, um, so, you know, don't, you know, don't look back, don't have blame or shame of what you did or didn't do. I mean, I, there's many ways that I was living. I thought I was, you know, oftentimes doing okay, being a good person. Um, and then I, as the more I've learned, I realized, oh, there's a lot more I can do. And gosh, I wish I knew that sooner. I wish I could have, you know, started that sooner. Um, for many years, I drove a V6 car and I didn't realize I thought it was okay. Like, you know, to have a, if I could afford it and it was comfortable, of course I would, that would be the vehicle that I would buy. And then I realized, ah, oh, I don't really need to do that. But instead of feeling guilty about that and shameful, I, I've learned. And I'm living my life in, in a way that's just more, more awake. So to, so to all of you who are listening, don't, don't beat yourself up. You know, just, just begin anew. And we'll, and we, we're gonna, you know, every moment is an opportunity to begin anew. So we're gonna, we're gonna slip. We're gonna make decisions and we're, you know, we're gonna want to take, you know, maybe if we can afford it, you know, exotic vacations once in a while. And not to feel guilty about it, but to maybe think, do we have to do that? Or maybe we do it less often, right? So I'm, I'm much more of a centrist with this. Like it's, yes, we have to act now, but you know, whatever is the entry point, I much rather have many more people starting and doing something and feeling empowered and inspired to rather than um, then many more, many of these people just shutting down because they feel like they're, they're overwhelmed. So begin where you can. People may also be thinking, well, how much do I have to give up in order to save our planet Earth? Well, it's all in our mindset. So I think every time that we have to quote unquote give up something, we actually are gaining something else. And so it's not that we're necessarily giving, giving something up. So, um, yes, it's going to require changes. It does require changes, but I actually think that there could be some beautiful things that come from those changes. Just think, think about, you know, how we, we navigated the, the COVID crisis. And yes, it was very hard and we had to give up a lot of things, but I noticed a lot more families in the park, a lot more family time together, a lot more connection, um, a different kind of connection. Yes, you were disconnected from, from others, but in some ways we were able to be more connected to those that were in our immediate world and even 
you know, even with the natural world, um, we were more connected. And so, yes, we will have to give up things. But instead of looking at what you have to give up, maybe look at what you have to gain from changing your lifestyle a little bit. Right. Whenever there's a loss, there's typically a gain. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the natural order of things. Ultimately, it really demonstrates our interconnectedness. It does. There's a lot of uh, anxiety in general, just about people feeling separate and feeling isolated and alone. Yeah. I mean, I think that when people can really touch into and to realize that we are interconnected, that actually can help us to break out of our isolation and feeling like our worlds and our lives are so small. And when we are con- constricted and we're myopic to the little lives that we're living, that actually closes us off. And it, it's scary and it's depressing and it takes a toll on our overall physical and our mental health. And that's where, you know, mindfulness, you talked about earlier, mindfulness and becoming aware, becoming conscious and beginning to notice that we are not alone. That's one of the biggest comforting things is to realize that we're all in this together. And that's the There's joy in that when we realize that, wow, and when we can begin to see that, we can let go, let be, and live, and 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 feel this this um, sense of um, beautiful fullness in in our lives. Yeah, we all need each other. Of course, we need, you know, times where we can have our own private time or with our um, own family or friends, but ultimately, you know, we all impact each other. How was that experience interacting with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Greta Thunberg during that conversation a couple of years ago? And how has that impacted you personally and professionally? That event was really, really exciting for me. So I had, I'm in this, this job, this position. I've had the opportunity to interact with His Holiness the Dalai Lama many times, but that was a particularly exciting moment because to see the Dalai Lama and Greta together, like on a Zoom screen together. And, and this is the, the, the amazing beauty of technology, right? They are, you know, one was in India, the Dalai Lama, and Greta was in Sweden. It was early morning for the Dalai Lama. It was the middle of the night for Greta. And for me, on the East Coast of the United States, it was like 11 o'clock at night. And then we had people all over the world. There were a million people that tuned in live, which I thought is like, it was actually our biggest online event that Mind and Life ever hosted. And, uh, and it was three days. It was, it happened on January 9th, 2021. And it was three days after the insurrection in Washington, DC. And people were awake late at night. 
middle of the night, early morning to, to watch it live. And, you know, why is that? Like, that's one thing that I think about. Well, why was it? Well, I could think about from my own personal experience. It was a moment of hope because you have people from different parts of the world, different generations, different cultures who care about the same thing. They care about our only home. We have one atmosphere. How we are living, how our communities are living, are living in this moment affects people all across, on the other part of the world. Why is that? Because it's one atmosphere. It's not like, you know, our power plant doesn't affect the power, affect the air you know, down in South America, it does. And so the Dalai Lama and Greta, you know, listening, listening to them just talk to each other with respect and with care. They care about, they care about things. Their styles are different. Their worldviews in some ways are very different, you know, and the religions are different. And yet they care about the same thing. And to me, that is inspiring. Mm-hmm. If they could do it, any of us could do that too. How wonderful to have an event like that. And at the same time, each one of us can make choices that can impact all of us. We don't have to be a significant large activist to make real positive impact and change. Right. Just begin with your families. Just begin with you know, how you're buying, what you're, you know, you know, buying is something for us to, that I, I think is a pretty low hanging fruit. What we buy, just stuff, what we eat, buy local, eat local. It's really, really helpful. That will cut down on, on fossil fuels and the food will, will be healthier and you'd be contributing to local economy. You know, so there, there's a lot. So just like these, these little simple ways are accessible all, all the time to us. Susan, this has been a very encouraging in the true sense of the word with the heart conversation. Is there anything else you want to share today about healing eco anxiety and the earth? There's one thing that, that is popping up in my mind that I think about and it's, it relates to this idea of why should I do anything? Because I don't know if it's going to matter, right? Why, why should I, why should I bother? And my, my response is the quick response. And then I'll share a story is just do the right thing. Just do the right thing. You know, the right thing We're we're, you know, your listeners are smart. They care. So do the right thing. You know the right thing. I don't have to tell you the right thing. You can begin to begin to have these micro moments of waking up and doing the right thing. So there's a, there's a story in, in the book, Future We Can Love that is, is shared by uh, a friend of mine, um, who's a teacher, a meditation teacher. Her name is, uh, Lama Willa, um, Blythe Baker. And Willa shares the story of um, being down in, in Costa Rica 
and she was there and she just happened to be sitting on the beach and noticing it was a very special moment. It doesn't, it only happens um, once a year. And it was, there was a, a turtle, a large female turtle that was laying her eggs on the beach. Okay. So this is not, let me just tell the listeners, this is not a story about turtles. Okay. This is a story about you. So I just want to be really clear here. So it's not like we're talking about the natural world. It's, it's a lesson from the natural world for us. A metaphor. A metaphor. Exactly. So she's literally watching the, the mother turtle laying her eggs on the beach and she's covering up the eggs with her fins. Now, what's extraordinary is that this mother turtle was actually born on that beach. And she left the beach many years earlier, many, many, many years earlier, and was, you know, swimming all around and, you know, living her, her life, but knew she needed to come back to the beach. She laid her eggs and she covered them up. And then once they were all covered up, she left. She knew the right thing to do was to go back to the beach and to cover them up with care. With just trusting that that was the right thing to do for her young. So then they will go on to live their lives and, you know, have a future for the next generation, the next generation after that. The mother turtle knew the right thing to do. She just trusts that doing the right thing is going to make a difference for the future generations. So my message, you know, to all of you is similar to that is like, just, you know, do the right thing now and trust that it, it's going to make a, a difference. It's going to help your children, your grandchildren, and other other generations and other species as well. That's a very inspiring story. And even if we are able to do the right thing, maybe a fraction of the time now, over time, that may grow and expand going forward. Yeah, as, as ourselves, and also we're influencing others who will do the same thing. Yeah. Well, Susan Bauer-Wu, it has been a joy being with you today. Thank you so much for inspiring all of us. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Emmy. It was really a delight speaking with you. Thank you for having me. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. June 1st, we've just released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.